You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. I think we're ready to begin. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO, as I'm sure many of you hear me say time and time again. Um, I'm absolutely delighted this evening to welcome Dr. Amin Jaffa, who um, conceived and developed the Maharaja exhibition, which opened in London at the Victoria and Albert in the autumn of 2009. Victoria and Albert's one of my favorite museums in the world. So, uh, Dr. Amin Jaffa is International Director of Asian Art at Christie's and specializes in Indian art in the age of European influence. For 13 years, a curator of the Victoria and Albert Museum, Amin authored Furniture from British India and Ceylon, V&A 2001, Luxury Goods from India, V&A 2002, and Made for Maharajas, a design diary of princely India, 2006. Amin was co-curator of the V&A's blockbuster 2004 exhibition, Encounters, the Meeting of Asia and Europe, 1500 to 1800, which explored the artistic and cultural encounter between Europe and Asia following the discovery of a sea route to India by Vasco da Gama in 1498. He lectures frequently in Europe, America, and India, and contributes regularly to journals and major newspapers. So welcome, please, Amin Jaffa. Okay, that's fine. Thank you. Thank you very much and good evening. Um, this evening I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about Indian princes and their patronage of European luxury houses, luxury firms in Europe. And there's no better place to start than with this Maharaja on the screen. Uh, this image, of course, is one of the headline images for the exhibition, uh, the manifestation of the exhibition here in, in Toronto. It's wonderful to see this image uh, all around the museum because it's always been my fa one of my favorites. It's a portrait of Maharaja Bhupinder Singh of Patiala, the great Maharaja of Patiala, who was an extraordinary man. He was a great statesman. He was a great soldier. He was a great athlete. He was a great collector. And uh, this portrait was taken of him in 1911 by his favorite photographer, Van Dyke. Van Dyke Studios were based in London. And the Maharaja um, enjoyed photography. He admired the work of Van Dyke and actually invited the photo studio to create a little um, photo room in Patiala, at, at the palace in Patiala, which, which happened. Um, this image is a particularly interesting one from the perspective of a, somebody who's studying colonial history or the history of the British Raj, because you have the Maharaja who's really um, decked out in Indian finery, um, splendidly, splendidly arrayed in ropes and ropes of pearls and diamonds, but he's also wearing um, some in quite interesting insignia. You see these medals on his chest, this insignia, which really speaks of his loyalty to the British crown and his close relationship with the empire. Well, as I said, the Maharaja was a man of, of great character, and he really outdid many of his peers um, in his activities. For example, he was the first man in India to have a, uh, a car. So he was the first ruler to have a car, first man to have a car in India. He his largesse, his philanthropy, 
uh, the scale of his building activities were all extraordinary. And um, in his relationships with the European luxury houses, this, um, this aspect of his personality was even more evident. His relationship in particular with the great jewelry firms of Cartier and Boucheron speak volumes about Indian princely patronage in the 20th century. Here we have a photograph of Louis Boucheron, uh, of the firm Boucheron, who traveled to India in the uh, 1920s. Now, obviously, as a goldsmith based in Paris, um, having seen photographs of the Maharaja of Patiala, he thought that the prince was a rather likely client and made his way to India to meet clients of that type who would um, very likely commission great jewels from him. But in addition, we must remember that um, India has had a very uh, highly developed and a very sophisticated culture of jewelry and uh, is very well located uh, for precious stones. For example, natural pearls from the Persian Gulf have always been exported to India. Uh, India itself has been a source of diamonds until about the 1720s and 1730s. It was the, print, the world's principal source of diamonds. Uh, Sapphires and rubies are abundant all around the region. And emeralds arrived in India in huge quantity from the 17th century onwards through the hands of European traders, uh, brought, of course, from South America and really used as a currency. So for people like Boucheron, coming to India was not only an attempt to find clients, but also an attempt to source stones, precious stones, and uh, to find pieces of Indian jewelry which could be reset or, or cut up. Well, Boucheron's experience with the Maharaja of Patiala uh, was not a very positive one. The first encounter did not go very well. The Maharaja bought a few gold boxes and a pen or two, but nothing substantial, nothing commensurate with the image of the Maharaja in his photographs. And um, it was only two years later that Boucheron realized that the Maharaja had taken him quite seriously and that the Maharaja was quite impressed by him on their first meeting. The Maharaja of Patiala um, in 1926 came to Paris and I'm going to uh, read out, I'm, well, I'm going to uh, deliver a few lines uh, translated from French from a contemporary French newspaper uh, about the Maharaja's visit. He was a great celebrity and he was in all the social columns in Paris. Uh, the, the text is this. When the Maharaja of Patiala arrived at his hotel on the Champs-Élysées, with 20 turban servants and 40 of his favorite dancing girls, Parisians were somewhat amazed. <laughs> anyway, the Maharaja had come with, besides all of these retainers, six trunks full of precious stones, uh, diamonds, pearls, sapphires, emeralds, etc. And the day after he arrived, he went straight to Boucheron um, and dropped these stones off to Louis Boucheron and asked him to make um, jewelry that was uh, usable and befitting sort of Indian princely, traditional Indian princely life, but which was in the latest taste. And Boucheron went on to produce 149 pieces of jewelry. And here we have one of the uh, drawings, one of the original designs from the Boucheron archives showing a rather splendid necklace. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Indian jewelry, you'll know that this cord tie is very typical. Um, also typical is this multi-layering uh, multi of large, large emerald beads. What is not typical is the fact that the jewelry, that the, that the emeralds are set um, in platinum, 
and that the settings are Western-style claw settings. Traditionally, Indian jewelry, Indian gems were set encased in, uh, was suspended or encased in gold, and um, often with foil behind to increase their luminous properties. But here what we have is uh, the marriage of the very latest French jewelry taste and technology with an Indian aesthetic in using Indian stones. The stones were provided by the Maharaja. The smaller stones, you know, these very, very fine diamonds were often supplied by Boucheron. They were brilliant cut, Western, Western cut stones. But the overall effect was a really splendid one. This is the necklace when it was actually completed. Uh, so you can see that these were very, very elaborate and extremely impressive pieces of jewelry which, which went on to influence Boucheron's own work for its Western clients. This is another piece of jewelry. I'm just showing you, it's a, it's a sort of um, curious image. This is a bazuband, it's an upper armband for a lady. And here you have a carved emerald and these very nice, beautiful emerald uh, beads set in a frame, a very kind of Art Deco frame of platinum. And this would have been worn by one of the Maharaja's ladies around her, around her arm. This is another piece which is more, you know, more visibly, uh, typically Indian as it were, a hair ornament or a forehead ornament. Again, very, very, very much part of, a, of, a, of an Indian uh, royal lady's apparel but you know, made in France in the 1920s, according to this commission. Well, Boucheron was in the process of producing all of these pieces of jewelry when he saw this advertisement. Uh, Crown jewels designed and mounted for the Maharaja of Patiala by Cartier, it was an exhibition. Cartier was exhibiting all of these jewels that they'd made for the Maharaja of Patiala. And Boucheron, Louis Boucheron was somewhat confused. He thought that he was making the, jewel, the jewels of the Maharaja of Patiala. Actually, and this speaks volumes about the wealth and the patronage of Indian princes, the Maharaja had divided up his jewels and that he'd given the more serious stones to the House of Cartier. So the House of Cartier was making effectively what was the regalia, you know, the crown jewels, and Boucheron was making the more ordinary or personal jewels uh, for this royal house. Well, the Cartier Commission is really exceptional in the history of jewelry. It's um, extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. In terms of quantity, uh, the Maharaja of Patiala remains the largest client that Cartier has ever had in terms of number of pieces. This is a triple tier ruby bead necklace. These are, of course, Burmese rubies from the treasury of Patiala. And you can see these three tiers, again, treated in a very typical Art Deco way, here with rubies, uh, here with rubies and pearls, and then here with wonderful diamonds suspended with this very strong uh, diamond shape. Uh, art Deco feeling, and this was really an exceptional, exceptional piece, but one of many that were produced for um, Patiala by Cartier. Many of the designs are published in, in um, my book, Made for Maharajas. I'm only going to show you a few here. You can see the Maharaja um, in the early 30s posing with six uh, of his wives, and here the one who's seated to his immediate right must have been the favorite, because she's the one who gets to wear that particularly splendid necklace, but they're all arrayed in exceptionally, exceptionally fine jewels. Well, really the greatest piece from this um, set of jewelry made by, made by Cartier was actually not one piece, but two pieces, two spectacular diamond necklaces. One was made of um, diamonds that were quite, um, quite unfinished, as it were, you know, large 
uh, stones that were polished but not really faceted. And to pair that, Cartier made uh, a diamond necklace of, of cut diamonds. This is only a working uh, photograph. It's a photograph of the, the working piece coded up. So it's very much a working, working model, but you're going to see the real thing in a second. And what you can see here is that it's a five-tiered, really exceptional parade piece of jewelry. This is the piece of jewelry which would have been worn on a state occasion. Now, uh, I, I haven't seen the exhibition here because I arrived a little bit late, but in the London showing, we, we did have this necklace on display um, with synthetic stones, unfortunately. It's, it's an interesting story I'll tell you later, but to give you a sense of scale, this uh, stone here is, I think, 250 carats. So it gives you an idea of the scale. All diamonds, but with three fantastic Burmese rubies. Uh, really an exceptional thing. In terms of design, there were many, many uh, ins sources of inspiration. On the one hand, these very large, large necklaces were typical in uh, princely India, and it must be stressed that these were, these were worn by men. The really grand jewelry in princely India was male jewelry, um, because it was the, the princes who were on display, and what they wore was really a representation of their wealth, the wealth of the state, therefore the power of their armies. You know, it was all represented symbolically by the things that they wore. Um, but there are also Western sources. I mean, when we think of the famous necklace um, that was made for Marie Antoinette, or supposed to have been made for Marie Antoinette that she never received, that was one of the incidents before the revolution, we, we think of these multi-tiered, very, very grand parade pieces of jewelry, of, of which this is a, uh, an example. Well, we don't have a picture of Maharaja Bhupinder Singh wearing it, but this is his successor wearing the necklace. Again, an extremely handsome man, and you can see around his neck this very, very substantial piece of jewelry. This is a fascinating photograph. Uh, like the photograph of, of Bhupinder Singh, it can be very uh, you know, studied and examined. Again, he looks the archetypal image of an Indian prince wearing a turban, a superb silk gown, and decked in jewels. But when you start to look at the jewels quite carefully, you'll see that the prince's um, identity is one that's bound up very much with the West in that uh, much of what he's wearing is European. This, of course, is the Cartier necklace. This is uh, an armband mounted for him by Cartier as well. This is a superb um, emerald. Uh, I don't know whether it's in the show here, but we had it in, we had it in London, which is now in the Qatar Museum. A fantastic, fantastic carved emerald, which is believed to have come out of the Mughal treasury, very likely provenance, again set by Cartier as a belt buckle. I think it's 450 carats, something like that. It's very, very major. He's wearing uh, a kind of tiara because under British rule, Indian princes were forbidden from wearing crowns. So what developed was um, very, very complex headgears often that resembled tiaras. So we find him really wearing jewels that are mainly of European manufacture. Added to which, we must remember that traditionally, um, Indian princes would have sat on textile thrones, typically on textile thrones on the ground, or would have sat on um, seats cross-legged. Uh, here we have him seated on a, uh, a, a silver-covered chair that's very obviously inspired by a Victorian grand uh, chair of you know, the 1850s or the 1860s. So we see that the prince's identity is one that's very, very much between Europe and India. And this is one of the, one of the major themes of, of, um, of the talk uh, this evening.
Well, the Maharaja of Patiala was not the first prince to go to Cartier. In fact, the prince who really led the way with Cartier was another Sikh prince from the region. It was the Maharaja of Kapurthala. The Maharaja of Kapurthala was um, a fascinating young man from a very, very young age. He, he came to the throne and he was under the influence of uh, a group of, of British tutors, European tutors. He was a brilliant linguist. He learned French in particular extremely well. And he became a great lover of all things French. He built in Kapurthala a superb uh, palace, uh, inspired partly by uh, the Louvre and Fontainebleau. He built a wonderful chateau in the country, which is a typical French chateau. And he furnished these houses in grand French taste. And he ultimately even bought a wonderful residence in Paris. He kept a diary of his travels, which are fascinate, make fascinating reading. And he writes about the day in 1924 or 5, I think, when he went to Cartier to pick up the superb tiara that they made for his, uh, I think it's Golden Jubilee celebrations. A tiara made with ex an exceptional collection of emeralds centered around this particularly fine um, hexagonal stone, which the Maharaja wore at his Jubilee celebrations, of which film footage exists. And we see all of his cousins and princes coming um, to celebrate with him this you know, year of his rule. And we see a direct result from that event to growing Indian patronage of Cartier, as the Maharaja was mainly wearing Cartier jewels during the festivities. Another prince of the same period, the Maharaja of Drangadra, also went to Cartier. We see a wonderful 60-carat emerald set into a turban ornament for him. Well, such was the volume of Indian business at the highest level of luxury houses in, in Europe that um, many designers started to prepare collections for the Indian market specifically. This is a lady's shoulder ornament devised by Shomei, the house of Shomei. Joseph Shomei uh, created this. It was not made for any particular client and the piece was never executed, but it was simply a design, as you can see, made for a lady who would be wearing a sari um, in the hope one day that you know a Maharaja would come in and Shomei could pull this out and say this is absolutely perfect for for you. Uh, a wonderful um, ornament composed of natural pearls. And I think that, you know, after the 20s, the culturing of pearls meant that means that we're so used to them. But of course, at the time, this was drawn, I think, in 1908, to find uh, this quantity of pearls so perfectly matched of this size would have made this an extremely, um, extremely sort of grand and impressive piece of jewelry, uh, let alone these four magnificent, magnificent emeralds. Uh, Shomei was really trying to create something over the top, as he did in this design for a Maharaja's coat, completely encrusted with precious stones, with you know diamonds all around, large, large emerald buttons, really, really spectacular. Again, this was never, never actually completed. Well, to give you a little bit of context about Indian princes going to Europe, after 1857, 1858, India is formally incorporated um, into the British Empire after years of being run, well, sort of managed through the East India Company. Um, after the great rebellions of 1857, 1858, what happens is that India is formally uh, put under the control of government. And Queen Victoria, in particular, takes a personal interest in India. And she realizes that um, in order to keep India very loyal to the crown, 
she needs to form a personal relationship with the Indian princes. And this she does by sending them letters and gifts and inviting them to come to London to visit her. Well, at the time, um, this was easier said than done. It was quite complex, not only logistically, but also because traditionally in Hinduism, there was a big fear about crossing the water. There, it was considered very, very inauspicious. And um, traditionally in Hinduism, there uh, are concepts of purity which apply particularly to somebody of the rank of a Maharaja uh, when he comes into contact with people who are impure or to be in places that are impure. And this was a, a big hindrance, but not so much for the man who's commemorated in this um, memorial, which actually is in Florence. The, the Raja of Kolapur, raised in the 1860s, a very westernized man, raised again by English tutors with a broad vision of the world, he decided against the advice of his family and of his priests that he would accept Queen Victoria's invitation and he would go and meet her. In advance of the trip, he uh, learned how to eat with a knife and fork, which was new. He practiced uh, eating European-style foods, which he had prepared by his palace chefs. And he practiced sitting on a chair, uh, all under the advice of his tutor, who was teaching him how to how to, how to live and be in the West. Well, the, the Raja of Kolapur came to London. He was a great success. He was written up in all the social columns. He went to parties. He did lots of shopping, and he writes about it all in his diary. But what happens on his way, he meets the queen, uh, what happens on his way back, mysteriously, in Florence, uh, where he stops for a day or two, returning to India, he falls ill and he dies. And he's cremated by special permission on the, uh, just on the River Arno, and this uh, beautiful memorial was created to him in the gardens, public gardens in Florence. Well, you can see that what happened for an entire generation is that no Indian princess came to the West um, until um, um, the Maharaja of Kapurthala, Jagajit Singh, the one I told you who was a great lover of all things French. Here he is here. This Maharaja again raised 20 years later, a very enlightened ruler, very international in his outlook, um, decided from the youngest age that uh, his greatest ambition was to travel and that he wanted to go to Europe. Well, he finally obtained permission from, his, um, from the, uh, the local resident in his court, and he traveled to the West, and he kept very, very extensive and very fascinating diaries. This is an extraordinary photograph of the Maharaja and his entourage after they're fitted up by a Savile Row tailor uh, with, their, with their Western clothes. The reason this was so important is that when they arrived in Italy, because they came through the Suez Canal, and they, and they landed in Italy, and landed wearing all of their traditional finery, their Punjabi clothes and turbans, they found that the Italians were overly excited um, and believed that they had escaped from a circus. <laughs> and they were followed wherever they went. And they couldn't actually do any of the sightseeing that they wanted to do because they aroused such attention. And in particular, at the Musée Grévin in Paris, which is a museum that has some wax figures, uh, one of the entourage was seated on a bench and was believed to be one of the exhibits in the, in the museum. So the Maharaja decided that they should all have Western clothes. And what's particularly exciting is to see an image of an Indian lady wearing European clothes uh, in the 1890s. I think it's, you know, at least for me, one of the earliest images I've seen 
of an Indian uh, royal lady wearing, wearing a Victorian dress. She actually um, was not permitted to leave Kapurthala. Um, she was actually smuggled out of Kapurthala for the journey, dressed as a young boy, dressed as a servant, until she got out of the state. Um, anyway, coming to the West was fraught with all kinds of complications from dress and cuisine. Food was one of the biggest issues. Um, for, for Indians, Hindus, or Muslims, there was a big issue, of course, of how food was prepared, certain regulations for the preparation of food, certain types of foods that could be eaten and not eaten. And, of course, there was the question of taste. Before Indian restaurants were abundant, um, how would an Indian prince traveling get the food that he wanted to eat on a daily basis? Well, the answer was that he would travel with uh, some chefs. But not only with chefs, very often an Indian prince would travel with um, his own cooks, his own vessels, his own um, spices, his own lentils, his own water. Um, in some cases, Maharaja Saiji Rao Baroda, the first time he went to Europe, traveled with his own cow so that he could have fresh milk. Um, so there was a big, big um, uh, production around all of this. And um, we have a little bit, this is quite written about, because in the princes, when, the princes, when they wrote diaries, would write about the food issue, because it was something they confronted three times a day. But this is a particularly um, wonderful survival, this photograph. It shows um, the kitchen staff from a Berlin hotel in 1930 posing for a photograph with the three cooks that accompanied a Maharaja who was staying in the hotel. And you can see that the, you know, the local German cooks do not look very happy. Um, what would have happened is the three Indian cooks would have come and commandeered the kitchen and you know, made all of these unusual foods uh, and sort of taken over. But it's a great, great um, commemorative image, I think. Well, Fortnum and Mason, uh, the great, great shop in Piccadilly, took advantage of this issue, this food issue, and engaged a, a lady from Bombay called Mrs. Batliwala who was living in London to supervise the production of authentic Indian food. And here we have uh, uh, an advertisement for Fortnum and Mason um, for menus that they created at the time of one of the Jubilees in the early 1930s. And if you read it, you'll see that it's a really very authentic Indian menu of the time. So Indian princes who were in London could order from Fortnum's and rest assured that everything was prepared properly according to the strictest dietary requirements and if they wanted to be served by Fortnum staff, it was possible, and it says turbaned waiters, an extra sum. So Fortnum provided this full service very, very uh, cleverly. Well, one of the main ideas of going to Europe for Indian princes was to shop. Um, there existed a great fascination for all things Western, which were exotic and modern and different. And we're very lucky that one of the princes who came to the West, the Maharaja of Bikaner, Maharaja Ganga Singh of Bikaner, was extremely meticulous. And every time he went to Europe, his ADC would open up a file listing his list of purchases. And this was a very complex document that would have maps of all the neighborhoods of all of the cities he would go to with little X marks where the shops were located and the names of the shops with all of the invoices and the complex letters that went back and forth about subsequent orders because everything in the palace in Bikaner and everything the Maharaja wore, all of the Western things, everything for the table, it was all ordered from London and Paris. Well, 
the Maharaja went to Europe almost every year, but the Maharani, his wife, did not always accompany him, but that did not mean that she did not participate in the shopping. This is a list she gave her husband in the 1930s file. Um, she learned to write English a little bit late in life, but here we have purchase list, uh, sewing basket, etc. This is a little bit hard to read, but here it says two jeweled Asprey boxes. So she had a very strong sense of Western brands and what she wanted, you know, what she wanted her husband to bring back for her. Well, visiting luxury showrooms was one of the main occupations of princes when they were in the West, it was partly to observe British arts and industries. So it was part of the course of their, of their trip. It was something that was organized through the India office. Here we have um, Maharaja Ganga Singh. He was an extremely handsome man. He was a great athlete. And here he is visiting the Spode factory, Spode porcelain factory, the showroom, after having seen the actual workshops. And he ended up, of course, ordering dinner services from Spode. Well, the commissions of Indian princes at this time became something of legend because they had such great means at their disposal. Uh, this is a very legendary figure, uh, Maharani Indira Devi of Kuchbihar. She was a princess from Baroda originally. And... Um, ran away and married the second son of the Maharaja of, of Kuchbahar, who fortunately became the Maharaja himself eventually, uh, but, but died quite young, and she was left in the interwar period, very much alone, uh, a very glamorous lady, attractive, uh, great fun, and spending a lot of time in London and in Paris. And this photograph of her gives a sense of how stylish she was. She re was really the one who introduced a very classic look for Indian women today of wearing these strands of pearls with chiffon saris, French chiffon. She would have um, Parisian um, a couturier make, make sari lengths for her. And she would have the borders applied in India or she would have them make sari borders and do the embroidery in Parisian workshops, perfecting this beautiful uh, look that was between East and West. This is a photograph of 1934. And one of her great commissions uh, took place when she met Ferragamo, the great shoemaker, Ferragamo. The first time she met him, she ordered 100 pairs of custom-made shoes, of which this is an example. This, uh, this shoe is now in the Ferragamo Museum in Florence. But she absolutely loved him and did a lot to promote him because she was very popular in America as well. She spent a lot of time in Hollywood on the west coast of America, where she wore his shoes, and she really made them very sought after among um, Hollywood actors and actresses. She eventually went on to commission him to make a pair of diamond-studded shoes for her. She gave him a bag of diamonds, which he set against green velvet, and then a pair of pearl shoes, which he set against black velvet for her. Another of the great patrons of the day was this gentleman here. You see him in two photographs, one where he's quite young and one when he's a little bit el uh, older. He is known as Ranji, um, Jam Sahib, the, the ruler of the state of Nawanagar in Gujarat. He was um, never a very rich prince, but he was one that really always loved precious stones. And he was in his youth a great cricketer, but did not, left, did not let his... Um, you know, athletic ability detract from his love of precious stones and wearing them. He uh, formed a superb collection of emeralds in particular for the state of Nawanagar, and often, you know, would have to buy things 
in installments, but had a very, very good eye for jewels. And his favorite jeweler was Cartier. Here we have um, a superb necklace of emerald beads, which Cartier reset for him. Here we have, a, I think, a bird made for him by Cartier as well. And this is one such example, a piece of jewelry made for the Maharaja by Cartier, I think in 1927. And you can see this very, very strong Art Deco feeling. This came with a matching turban ornament. To give you a sense of scale, this emerald at the very bottom is a 70-carat stone. So these were very spectacular and large-scale pieces of jewelry. The other thing that princes did is they commissioned portraits of themselves by European artists and sculptors. This is the ruler of Baroda, that beautiful princess, Indira Devi, it's her father, Maharaja Saiji Rao, being, uh, sitting for, um, sitting for um, a, a sculpture by uh, an Italian artist. And I was very lucky to be able to find the documents, the documents requesting visas for the artist to come to Baroda, to stay there, to create um, statues, likenesses of all of the members of the royal family. And here he is in London at the studio of um, Lafayette, great London society uh, portrait photographer. The collection exists today in the Victoria and Albert Museum. This is an image that's quite interesting. He is posing uh, in the studio, uh, getting ready for a shot that he's going to do the next day on a horse. So he's simulating his expression uh, for the photograph the next day on the horse. And this again is his lovely daughter, Indira Devi. This is a portrait by de Laszlo, the great, great uh, portraitist Laszlo. And it's a really exciting image because it's quite a suggestive and provocative one. Although she loved shoes, as we saw, here she's removed her feet from her shoes and she's folded up one leg under her. She's wearing a wonderful chiffon sari. She uh, is, is sitting in a kind of hybrid east-west manner she had a very strong sense of her Indian identity, although she was very westernized. And again, traditionally, uh, an Indian princess would, or Indians traditionally within the home, would have been very often barefoot. So she, when on one of her uh, visits to Buckingham Palace, when she went to, went to visit Queen Mary, went barefoot, uh, feeling that that was the most appropriate dress for an Indian princess. She was a little bit scandalous. And this is a superb, superb photograph by Cecil Beaton of a, a princess called Sita Devi of Kapurthala. That Maharaja, the Francophone Maharaja, the one whom we saw in Western dress, this is his daughter-in-law. She was a great linguist. She spoke many, many languages and extremely beautiful. And you can see this very disembodied pose with her head, you know, quite surreal image with the white flowers. She became a great... Um, sort of icon, fashion icon of the 30s, and was photographed. She was always on the cover of British Vogue and American Vogue. She modeled for Cartier, and she was a great sort of figure in society. Here she is modeling some jewelry. She was very, very dramatic looking. But I think the greatest patron of all of these, I'm not sure whether these pictures came to Toronto, but they were part of the London exhibition, yeah, was the Maharaja of Indore. He was... Um, uh, a very precocious and very, very aesthetically refined prince from the central Indian state of Indore, whose father was, his father abdicated quite uh, early on in his career. So he became Maharaja as a minor and was educated very largely in England and spent a lot of time in France. And uh, 
from a very, very young age, started to buy great works of art. And he was spending way beyond his budget, but his trustees recognized that his taste was so good that what he was buying was just going to go up in value, which in fact was the case. This is a portrait of him in white tie before he, before he achieves his, uh, his majority, painted by French artist Boutet de Montvel, a great society portraitist, again, of the interwar period. When the Maharaja um, came to the throne, he had himself painted in traditional Maratha dress, the traditional dress from his state, again by Boutet de Montvel. And this really, I think, reflects his dual identity as a prince who was very at home in, in the West and quite at home in the East as well. He's wearing around his neck, it's quite difficult to see, but he's wearing around his neck two superb diamonds. These are the indoor pairs, two 40, approximately 45 carat pear-shaped, perfectly matched Golconda diamonds, which his father bought from Chaumet, I think in 1913, and set by Chaumet. The Indian princes had great jewels on the whole, but they continued to acquire them, and they bought them very often from European dealers and jewelers. Uh, this Maharaja's father loved Chaumet, and Chaumet set a lot of the family stones. But when he came to the throne, he preferred another firm, the firm of Maubussin, not so well known today, in Place Vendôme. He, then the way he got to the firm was that when he was at Oxford, he met a young man who was studying uh, comparative religion. And that young man was the nephew of the owner of, of Maubussin. And so he started to go to Paris, and eventually this young man became responsible for his account and came out to India, spent a month cataloging the family jewels, and was responsible for uh, developing new designs for them. So here we have the indoor pairs again in various alternative settings. Uh, and I think ultimately this one was made, this one was executed. I seem to think it's that one that was executed. But anyway, um, the, the, you know, these big stones were set and reset a number of times. What happened with this Maharaja, very sadly, is that um, after his beloved wife died, he started to sell off a lot of his jewels, and the indoor pairs were sold ultimately to Harry Winston, who had them recut a little bit and had them made into earrings. And I always think it must have been for a lady with very strong earlobes, because these are 45-carat diamonds. They're very, very substantial pieces of jewelry. This is another uh, design made for the same Maharaja using those pairs, a wonderful, wonderful turban ornament. And you can see, and I, I'm not sure, again, about the content of this exhibition, but you can see, again, that this is a very traditional piece of Indian jewelry. It's a very classic turban ornament, you know, a design of the 18th century, early 19th century. But the lines have all changed. They're all angular. The setting is all in platinum. And it was very, very standard. If it was not a European jeweler making it in, in Europe, the lesser princes often would have exactly this type of thing made, but in India, but copying what was coming out of Europe. And that's actually the finished product. Uh, the Maharaja decided not to set the indoor pairs here. This is not included in that image, but it's just a wonderful thing to look at. It's a, it's a diamond chandelier tassel. Really wonderful piece of jewelry. The Maharaj of Indore um, was not only focused on jewels, he was focused on design in general. He was a modernist, he loved modern architecture, and he commissioned a, a fairy tale palace of modernism. This is the dining room. Uh, this was all designed by 
uh, an architect friend of his called Eckhart Mutasius, again, whom he met in Oxford. They were very young. They were in their 20s when Mutasius received this great commission to come to Indore and design this completely modern palace, which was such a break with traditional Indian palaces, which were ornate and very richly worked. This is a writing room for the Maharani, for the Maharaja's wife, all in tones of silver with... Um, all of the carpets and the furniture were designed by the greatest makers of the day. Corbusier was involved. Uh, Ruhlman was involved in you know, all of the big names of the period. And this is an amazing thing, which is a dressing trolley uh, made for the Maharani. I don't know whether it's on display here, but we, we had it. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, very convenient with wheels. And then with these holes here, of course, these are for heating up the curling irons at an age when every woman needed to have that little curl in her hair, and using materials that were quite avant-garde, synthetics, you know, plastics at the time. And for the Maharaja, something equally cool, which is um, a library reading chair with the lights incorporated in the seat and a silver ashtray. And this was covered with bright red synthetic leather at a time when that was quite you know, a smart thing to do. And here's a photograph of the Maharaja by Man Ray. Man Ray kept very detailed diaries of his clients, his meeting with clients, and he writes in his autobiography about his meeting with the Maharaja. He was first commissioned to photograph some of his horses. He then later met the Maharaja and realized that they both had a love of jazz music. And they met in the south of France, and when, when the Maharaja realized that Man Ray liked jazz, they jumped into the Maharaja's car and they drove from Cannes to Nice to find a record shop. And they bought some records and came back to the hotel room and started to drink, play the music, and Man Ray took wonderful, wonderful photographs. And then on a second occasion, he took lovely photographs of the Maharaja and the Maharani together, um, looking at the model of, of the palace, which we just saw, beautiful, beautiful images. Well, this again is a sketch by Bute de Mauvel for of the Maharani, uh, San Yogita was her name. She died very young. She died at the age of, I think, 36. And the Maharaja was really broken-hearted after that and um, ceased really to be a patron of the arts, and the collection was subsequently dispersed. Um, one of the things he had acquired was a group of three sculptures by Brancusi, Birds in Space, and um, white marble, black marble, and in bronze. And he had decided, after the Maharani died, that he'd, he would create a beautiful temple of meditation in her memory. Uh, with the three birds in space, but ultimately the project was not realized and the Brancusis were dispersed, and these two are now in the National Gallery of Australia. Another figure who was a great patron of the day was this lady, um, the very unlikely uh, Rani Molly, Molly of Pudukotai. She was an Australian girl who was in a hotel lobby in Sydney when the Raja of Pudukotai, a prince from a very, very small state in South India, happened to walk in, and they, they met each other, they saw each other, and they fell in love, and uh, they married. And uh, they had a very good and very successful marriage, but it was a, a union that was really frowned upon by the British government. The big problem was that it, in, in, in official terms, what it did is it elevated um, girls who were commoners, you know, who were untitled ladies, um, into a royal sphere, and it created a lot of tension at the time. And the big issue was what would happen to the children, because the children came from two backgrounds. They, had, they were impure in terms of their bloodlines, and um, 
it created all kinds of confusion. So when they had a son whom they decided to call Sydney because they'd met in Sydney, um, they were effectively forced to abdicate. And what happened is that uh, Rani Molly and her husband moved to the south of France and she started to commission really fabulous clothes and jewelry from all the leading designers. And this is one of her dresses, which is now, I think, in the Musée Galleria in Paris. But she was very, very clever in that she left the clothes to institutions and her, her, her uh, heirs left the clothes to institutions. But she was a great figure and a great, they were a great, you know, great patrons of their day. And one of the most legendary figures of the period, a little bit later, was this lady here, uh, Maharani Sita Devi of Baroda. Wonderful photograph um, by uh, Henri uh, Cartier-Bresson. She is um, wearing jewels, putting on jewels, to celebrate her husband's 40th birthday uh, in the Palace of Baroda. She was a very scandalous figure because she was a very handsome woman, a very striking woman, um, of southern Indian origin, already married when she met and fell in love with the Maharaja of Baroda, who was himself already married. Now, um, Baroda was a very progressive state, and the Maharaja's grandfather had abolished polygamy in the state of Baroda. One could only have one wife in Baroda, which was atypical in the princely states, where polygamy was the, was the norm for, for members of the royal family and for leading noblemen. And uh, they fell in love, but they found a very inventive solution uh, traditionally in Hinduism, divorce did not exist as a concept. You know, one couldn't just separate from somebody and after having performed sacred vows. Uh, so, so what she did is she converted to Islam. In Islam, divorce is perfectly acceptable because marriage is, is viewed as a contract which you can break. And so she converted to Islam to divorce from her husband, which she did, um, so that she was free to marry the Maharaja. But the big problem that they had was that the Mah in the state of Baroda, um, he could not marry her because he was already married. But in British India, polygamy was allowed. So what they did is they got married in British India, and she married him as his second wife, totally above board. And once they got married, she reconverted back to Hinduism. And then they arrived in Baroda. Uh, and legally, you know, she was his wife. And this happened all in the early 1940s while the war was going on and the whole world was sinking to its knees, but you wouldn't believe how many voluminous files exist on this in the India Office Library in London because the, the Viceroy didn't know whether she should receive the title or not and nobody knew how she should be treated or acknowledged. And it was a very, very you know, big issue um, because the, the, the issue of precedence came out every time she was in public or every time the Maharaja took her out, every time there was a dinner, every time they were received or not received. It was a very, very big issue. But anyway, um, she was a very handsome woman who loved jewels. You can see her wearing a great Baroda necklace there with two superb diamonds. What happened between 1947 and 1949 after India became independent and became a democratic republic was that uh, Indian princes were, in many cases, nervous about their political situation, about their existence, and they took their jewels out of the country. And indeed, in the case of uh, Maharani Sita Devi, she told her husband that um, you know, they should indeed take some of their family jewels out, which she did, which they did, and um, she went out of the country with them. She divorced her husband, and she ended up spending her days in Paris, becoming a big client of Van Cleef and Arpels, 
which was her favorite firm. And here we have her wearing some wonderful Van Cleef jewels. This is with her son, um, with the Maharaja, called um, Princey. His nickname was Princey. And here we have Pierre Arpel showing the Maharani a, a wonderful, wonderful diamond, a 101 carat diamond, I think, which uh, Pierre Arpel's called the Princey in the hope that she would buy it, but she never bought it. Anyway, she then started to reset a lot of the Baroda stones with, um, with Van Cleef. And this is, these are just a few stock cards from the Van Cleef um, records. Here you have a wonderful emerald inset with a diamond, something made for her in the late 40s. Again, sort of classic diamond uh, bracelet, you know, early 1950s. But the, the, really the greatest thing that Van Cleef made for her was this necklace, known as the fringe necklace, again, because of these beautiful, beautiful emerald drops. And this is the original design. You can see there's a piece of paper here, because if you lift it up, there was an alternative design for her to choose. But she ended up going with the flower, and this is the finished piece. I don't know whether it's in the show, but we had it in the London version of the exhibition. And equally wonderful, which the Maharani commissioned, was this um, gold tongue scraper. Uh, this was a particularly interesting, interesting thing because it appears in the Van Cleef notebooks with the sketch, and underneath it says, times two. And underneath that, it says, very urgent. <laughs> she also bought this wonderful uh, <coughs> cigarette holder with a, one, uh, a brillet diamond there. So you can imagine her smoking her cigarette with this wonderful stone flashing in the eyes of, uh, all, of the, all of the people she met at cocktail parties. So these sorts of rare and wonderful gifts are fairly typical um, when we think about it. This is another commission from Van Cleef and Arpels. It was made for an anonymous Indian prince. Many of the princes ordered things through agents. We don't know who they were. This is a frog cage um, made with a gold ladder uh, fantastic uh, coral, trees, lapis lazuli, little swimming pool with lapis, steel, onyx, and uh, it was called the Maison d'Hortense because this Maharaja had a frog called Hortense, and he was a very prophetic frog. Uh, the number of steps that he climbed up each day indicated to the Maharaja what the weather was going to be like on the next day. So the Maharaja had commissioned this extraordinary cage, and after the after the, after the frog died, it was converted into a bird cage, and in fact, sold by Christie's just a little while ago. But this is probably the greatest and most unusual commission of princely India. It's a, a bed, as you can see, of rosewood encrusted with silver, on each corner of which is a life-size bronze, flesh-color-painted naked woman uh, fitted with mechanics so that when the Maharaja, when the, in fact, this case, it was a Muslim prince, when the Nawab sat in the bed, he could press a button that would set off the fans, set off the fans that they were holding, uh, and would set off their eyes so that they would wink at him. <laughs> and a second button would set off a 30-piece, uh, of 30-piece, 30 uh, 30-minute piece of music from the damnation of Faust. So uh, this was a really exceptional thing. And the, the women were meant to represent the four 
types of women the, the, the ruler most love, Greek, French, Italian, and Spanish. Um, so this was the, the whole idea. Anyway, it was made by the Parisian, by the French um, silversmith firm of Christoffel. But it was made uh, by them through an agent, and it was made in 1883. But was that it was, it did, they did not know until 1983 who the client was, who was the Nawab of Bawalpur. Bawalpur is now a state that's in Pakistan. The bed has sadly been broken into pieces because of inheritance, inheritance issue, where the heirs decided that each of them wanted one of the ladies. <laughs> Nobody wanted a, any one of the cousins to have, him, have the bed intact. So it was all split up. This is another rather extraordinary commission. A miniature train that um, uh, runs around the state dining table of uh, the palace, the Jai Vilas um, Palace in Gwalior. The train holds brandy, you know, port, cigars, chocolates, etc., and it's sensitized so that if a guest reaches out, the, the, the train stops. And it's uh, emblazoned with S for the family name, Cynthia. Of course, far more routine was ordering your shoes from the West. This is uh, something from the archives of John Lobb from the Maharaja of Jaipur. When he went to London for the first time, John Lobb would take a measurement of his foot, rather hollow, sunk. Um, and what would happen is that thereafter, of course, they would start to produce the shoes that were custom made and send them to India. Jega Le Coultre, the, the watch company that makes Reverso watches, started to produce watches specifically for, in, for Indian princes. This is for a Maharaja who wanted an image of his wife in his watch. He ordered two of them, one same wife, but two watches. And then here on the side, we have one of a Hindu deity. These are now in the collection of the Jega Le Coultre Museum. Uh, the Maharaj of Nawanagar, the one who, was, who loved the emeralds, commissioned Royal Worcester to paint a series of plates for him showing scenes of his hometown Jamnagar, which he would use when he was at his country house in England. And when he was um, in India, uh, he would use the plates painted by Royal Worcester showing his country house in England. And of course, many of these things had coats of arms on them. The whole idea of, of uh, emblazoning these commissions with coats of arms was absolutely standard. This is a, one from a, from a collection of um, sketches which were um, coats of arms which would have been applied on the sides of cars. And here you have all the specifics of the colors, etc. This is for the state of Visianogram with the VR in the middle. But we have this monogram culture everywhere. These are, these are stock cards from Louis Vuitton. This is for a big order made for the Maharaja of Jammu in Kashmir. And you can see that the J and K initials are specified. And we know exactly all about this, all about this order. You can see J and K right there. This is just one of a huge, huge suite of luggage that was made for this Maharaja. This is a trunk that was made to accommodate the shoe cleaning equipment that traveled with the Maharaja. You can see this is for holding the shoes. These are all for brushes and bottles. Um, the shoes themselves had numerous trunks. It's quite amazing the scale of this patronage. Things were mainly custom made, but sometimes they were 
stock products. For example, this is a dressing case made for the Maharaja of Patiala, the first one, Maharaja Bhupinder Singh, uh, from the stock of Cartier. And when he bought it, they added his monogram to the pieces. This was again in the London show. I don't know whether we, we have it here. Yeah. Well, all of this commissioning was only a little bit um, of what the Maharajas were actually spending. Because, of course, once they westernized, once they started to uh, be Western educated, once they started to travel in Europe, the, the way that they lived altered. And they, they gave up the traditional fortified palaces that their families had hitherto occupied, which were mainly in town centers or um, enclosed with uh, a very strict seg seg uh, segregation of male and female living quarters. And they started to build Western-style palaces, which had all of the modern amenities in terms of plumbing and uh, heating and cooling and billiard rooms and dining rooms and ballrooms and everything that suited the way that they lived. Here's a superb palace, the Lakshmi Vilas Palace in Baroda, built for um, Maharaja Saiji Rao of Baroda. Two architects worked on it. It looks Indian on the outside, but the floor plan is very typically European. In fact, it was just attempting to look like a haphazard Indian palace, but in fact, it's a completely Western conception. A more obviously Western palace is this one, built in Jodhpur, which is now the Umayyad Bhavan Palace Hotel. It's run by the Taj Group. It's a really sensational hotel, one of the great palaces of the 20th century. You can see it's a kind of modernist aesthetic. The whole idea is um, it marries something of traditional Indian architecture with, with modernism, designed by a man called um, Lanchester, who was a great civic architect in South Africa and in, and in Great Britain, creating an, a great, great scale of architecture. And of course, all of these palaces had to be furnished with chandeliers and lights and the whole works. And it was typically the London and Paris firms that did all of this. We have in um, the Royal Institute of British Architects in London, voluminous records on these projects of how the entire room schemes would be conceived in London, uh, ordered and sent out to fit up these palaces. So the Indian princes were, in many senses, all surrounded entirely by Western luxury goods. And um, all of this came at a price. I'm going to close my talk by talking a little bit about the, the mundane aspects of life in princely India. Um, this is the document which I, I found when I was doing research from, for, for my book made for Maharajas in the British Library. And what was it but a list of debts owed by the Maharaja Patiala, Bhupinder Singh? Um, it looks, uh, I'm not sure how well you can read it. It looks a little bit out of focus to me. But anyway, all of the main firms are represented. You know, you have Jack Barclay, you have Dunhill, you have Thomas Cook and Sons, you have here Cartier, you have bad, wrongly spelled Boucheron. Anyway, you've got them all there. And the total amount that the Maharaja owed was 54,000 pounds in 1930, which is an extraordinary amount of money. And the thing was that he didn't have it. He didn't have 54,000 pounds. So what he did is he applied to the British government. The British government had released in these years um, a, a lending scheme for Indian princes who needed to borrow money on, on very low interest rates. And he applied and he said that he needed money to pay off these debts. And he received a very polite letter back saying that the scheme was intended for irrigation projects and bridges and <laughs> those kinds of things. It wasn't just for shopping. And so they didn't uh, bail the Maharaj out, but he got local money lenders to advance sums. And he eventually paid off these tradesmen. 
and he he went back to Europe in 1935 and went back to the same firms, Boucheron and Cartier, to remake more jewelry. But the precarious existence of many of the princes is highlighted by the fact that not long after independence, many of their greatest jewels were broken up. The pace of living was so high um, that when they were brought to live within quite small budgets, actually, after 1947, when they were no longer reigning princes, one of the first things to go was the jewels. And so we close the talk, really, with this necklace that um, we started with, the great parade necklace made by Cartier for the Maharaj of Patiala, was alienated by the family at some point, uh, and it was discovered not very long ago, let's say 10 years ago, in um, a jewelry store. And what, what um, was, was left was that all of the big stones, of course, had been plucked out and had been sold on the market. But what remained was the platinum frame and some of the smaller stones. And this was eventually acquired by Cartier, who reset it with synthetic stones and put it on exhibition. And uh, I believe it's here. Yeah, we had it in London as well, with the great De Beers diamond there. A really spectacular thing, and I, I hope the film footage is here as well. We had wonderful film footage of the Maharaja wearing it in procession. Um, one of the points I want to make, and, and the closing point of this, of this talk is this. Um, today, if you, if you read the Financial Times, or if you're in India at all, you see that there's a great, great, great re-emergence of Western luxury brands in India. If you drive into Bombay today, on the way into town, you see a great Porsche dealership, and you see a Rolls-Royce dealership, and you have Cartier, and Chaumet, and Louis Vuitton shops everywhere. And uh, you know, just about once every week, or once every two weeks in these cities, Chanel is relaunching, and you know it's just unbelievable what's happening in terms of luxury brands in India. And it's always couched within this rhetoric of you know Western luxury is coming to India. But what's often overlooked is an actual fact that um, Western luxury brands were very present in India 100 years ago, uh, 80 years ago, 60 years ago, and that in many cases, in particular in the 1930s, when the West was entirely in depression, it was the Indian princes who kept some of these houses alive. It was particularly the case of the jewelers, like Cartier, who survived through the early 30s on the backs of the Indian princes because the, uh, the Russian royals who had kept them alive for a very long time no longer existed. Uh, America was in depression, Western Europe was in depression, and it was the Indian princely taste for luxury that, um, that sustained the luxury houses. So what we see is that India actually had quite a large role in the making of Western luxury. Thank you very much. I'm not really sure I'm ready for him to stop talking yet. Um, Amin is very happy to take questions now, and we like to use the microphone to record the questions because we're recording this talk for the website. We're going to podcast it. So, Shirley, are you still here? Would you mind helping me? So if you hold a microphone for one side of the room. Hello there. Thank you for that. That was so enlightening. Uh, actually, it's interesting that you ended on, on the resurgence of the, the brands um, back in India because I've been following that, and that was my question. So what happened in between? Um, now it's, it's so overt. Was it just that they were there and it was hidden, or is it, it really was a resurgence? Well, what happened after 1947 with Indian independence, of course, is there was a huge um, nationalist sentiment, first of all, with India trying to establish its own 
modern identity. So uh, part of it was um, a very protectionist economy, which um, led to the development of indigenous, all, all you know, an indigenous substitute for everything that was formerly being imported from the West. While Britain was part of the British, while India was part of the British Empire, of course, um, it fed it fed the mother country. So Indian cotton, for example, would go to India and be processed and then sold back to India. So the whole idea uh, post forty seven was to create a self sustaining economy. So there were trade barriers, and it was impossible really to get Western products. It, you know, foreign currency regulations. You couldn't take money out. You couldn't bring things in. I remember in India, and as late as the early 1990s, I was traveling in India, and my camera broke, and I couldn't find, uh, I could only find Indian cameras, which were not as good, of course, as, as Japanese cameras or American cameras, but there were no substitutes. I'm sure everybody remembers the days when the only cars were the ambassador cars on the roads. You know, there were no foreign cars, you couldn't get foreign clothes. So it was impossible for these firms to trade, but aside from that, there was a big mentality shift because the whole Gandhian, Nehruvian uh, philosophy was one of simplicity. If there was luxury, it was a very indigenous luxury. It was Indian authentic tradition that you were celebrating. Um, post 1990s, India has opened up. It's opened up its trade barriers. You can, um, as an outside firm, you can be well represented in India. The Indian economy is boomed. There's a lot of excess wealth. And so they have resurged. These firms have come back. Uh, there really was, they didn't exist in India in, in the interim. Thanks, it was a wonderful talk. And the book is of course available in, the, uh, in our uh, gift shop as well. I was going through that. Um, I have a question with regards to your designing of Maharaja's show. Um, when we see the portrait of uh, Maharaja of Indore, for example, and uh, at what was behind choosing those portraits, uh, and what was their importance in the show in VNA? Well, um, you the, chose two portraits. Yeah. Well, originally there were four portraits. There was the Maharaja of Indore in Western dress and in Indian dress, and then the matching portraits of his wife in Western dress and in Indian dress. And it, we had configured it then with all of their, not all of their, but with their furniture and jewels as well. You see, the idea with um, my book made for Maharajas, which was translated largely into the exhibition was to show that um, Indian royal patronage continued. We may have an idea of the Indian prince as one thing, but in actual fact, uh, at the time of Mughal supremacy, Indian princes configured palaces that were inspired by Mughal palaces and decoration. In the British period, they started to live in British-style interiors. And of course, in the 20th century, when they were looking towards um, France in particular and America in particular, they uh, patronized modernist taste and international style. So the idea was really to show modernity and patronage and to show a prince who had a design identity, not only who bought things, but who was responsible for um, leading design because he was a taste maker and that the people around him, the, the French people around him recognized that he was an avant-garde. So the idea was really to show <clears throat> the role of, uh, of, of the Maharaja of Indore as a maker of taste, as a patron, uh, and also to show his dual identity. You know, that he was very, very European, but he was also very Indian. Sadly, we, we never got the, the, the portraits of the Maharani. Here we have only one. 
yeah, it's difficult. It's it's very difficult when you have an have an exhibition and you travel it, and you know. And if it's a successful show, it travels for longer. But uh, you know, for condition reasons, you you can't have the loans out on show on on show all the time. So. Thank you. I mean, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, would you speak a, a little bit about the the influence of the uh, the the Indian uh, Maharajas for the Western jewelry market, um, for for those in the West wearing um, jewelry of Indian design. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, what happens is that I think that you know um, Western jewelry had made great advances in terms of um, technique, the use of platinum, which was you know in the West jewels were traditionally set in gold and silver. But silver is silver tarnishes, which is a factor, and gold is quite malleable and a little bit soft. So the development of platinum really changes jewelry production in the West. Um, well, what happens is that um, I think Cartier is at the center of all of this. When Jacques Cartier goes to India and he sees Indian jewelry, he finds it quite beautiful. And he's not only sourcing stones, but he's also sourcing old Indian jewelry which he brings back to New York and to Paris and to London. And Cartier starts to have these exhibitions where they sell Indian jewelry. And they also cut it up and they reset it in the latest taste and they play around with it and they do all kinds of things. And it's so different from Western jewelry because European jewelry at the time was so serene in many senses because you had diamonds set in platinum, the platinum disappeared. And uh, often you had diamonds set with pearls or with one colored stone, you know, you'd have rubies and pearls and diamonds. But I mean, you had a, quite a serene look. In India, the effect was totally different. The jewels were mainly set in gold, yet very yellow gold. And you had multiple jewels set. So you'd have you know, rubies, emeralds, pearls, uh, all a mixed, you know, topaz, all mixtures of stones. And you had a proliferation of stones. You had an abundance of, you had a lot of use of beads. So um, Cartier, um, making things for the princes, became very familiar with this aesthetic. Bringing Indian jewelry to the West and selling it and showing it, you know, became very used to it. And their most cutting edge clients began to really rather like this new taste, which was so exotic and curious, particularly um, when we come into the 1920s, which is an age where exotica really starts to dominate taste, whether it's, um, you know, you think of it in terms of the ballet russe, or you think of it in terms of the taste for Egypt and Egyptomania, or you think of it in terms of the taste for Oriental fashions, Japan. All, there are so many influences in the 20s, and India is one of them. And all of a sudden, this whole idea of wearing these sautoirs and long, long chains of beads and pearls and things comes into fashion. And India is at the very center. And Cartier uh, takes full advantage of this and really leads it in, in a way and produces a phenomenal piece of jewelry, which I didn't show in this talk, but I, I speak on a separate subject, which is all about, which is all about the... The, the jewelry, uh, which is a great necklace made for uh, a lady called Daisy Fellows, which is called a Hindu necklace because it has uh, sapphires, emeralds, rubies, diamonds, you know, the whole lot just, you know, all stuck there um, with a traditional cord tie. And this, the, the, the stones were of such a size and such a brightness that they looked like sweets, you know, boiled sweets. <laughs> And this whole style became known as Tutti Frutti. <laughs> and it led to a big, big, big taste, not only by Cartier, by all of the luxury houses, all of the, all of the jewelers were making these, this type of jewelry. But, you know, there was a huge, huge influence 
Um, and we really saw India transforming the way the jewelry was worn in the West at the time. And it was, again, at the highest level of society. And it was the women who were really leading taste. I hope that gives something of a... Okay. Okay. Um, can you talk a little bit about the education of these Maharajas? Because I don't think many people here know about the schools like the boarding... The Mayor College and things. Yeah. Yes, the colleges and things. Because I think this had a tremendous influence on yeah. even um, getting them... Yeah. completely inculcated in this European Absolutely. concept. Well, in the days of the East India Company, the biggest problem the East India Company faced was, of course, it wanted to um, you know, exert influence over the princes, but of course, the way of governance, the family systems in India, the intrigues of the court, I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing was so um, difficult to manage that once the once the Raj actually happens, you know, once 1857, 1858 takes place, it's really decided that the whole policy of the government should be to try and educate princes in a Western manner. As soon as they can think like, uh, like Europeans, you know, they'll start to behave like Europeans. So this was the whole mentality. And so the idea was that Indian princes should all have Western tutors. They should all have a British tutor who would raise them at home, who would teach them English, who would teach them, you know, the, the so-called apparent benefits of Western civilization, etc. But what happened in addition to this is that colleges were set up in the different states, you know, at the center of a group of states or in a different presidency for all of the rulers, sons of rulers and noblemen of those states who would go there, like Mayo College. And what would happen is they would follow a Western curriculum and they would learn to play cricket they would learn uh, the benefits of reading the Times every morning, all of this type of thing. So they were totally trained in a Western model. And um, this meant they were separated, therefore, from their families. Uh, they learned perfect English. And this meant, therefore, that when they returned to their states and when they became rulers in right, in, you know, the first thing they would do is move out of the traditional palace. And they would get out of the whole zenana, the, 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 the whole female quarter of the palace, and they would um, build European-style palaces. Therefore, they wanted the company of Europeans. They integrated more easily with Europeans in the end, by, with Westerners. They, they would dress more often in Western dress. And in actual fact, it reached, it was a superb policy for control. But of course, it really started to rebound because when it came to marriage, very often the princes then would, would marry an Indian woman um, for dynastic reasons, but really wanted to be with European women because they, they socialized in the same way and they lived in the same way, um, they started to question uh, tradition. And of course, they, they, um, once they went to the West and really lived in a Western way, they wanted to transplant the Western way of living in India. And of course, that was not possible because there were so many um, strictures, both just social customs and religious that made it impossible. And so the princes were often in, caught in a very peculiar position, an unhappy position. And many of them of the 20s and 30s led quite complex lives, double lives. Sometimes they abdicated. You know, they, it was not very, very easy. Um, one, of the, one of the kind of classic combinations, one of the classic issues was one of dress. Whenever an Indian prince was uh, to be seen in public in a Durbar context or was visiting the viceroy publicly, he was asked to wear his Indian dress. He was obliged to wear a Darbar dress, Indian courtly dress, so that he really appeared as an image of India. 
But of course, uh, by the time you got to the 1940s, this was really absurd because these Indian princes were just wearing suits all the time, normally. So they began to feel as if they were having to play a role that wasn't really them. So the whole thing of Western education was brilliant for a while, but it created all kinds of problems. One of the big issues of um, particularly education by, by sending kids to Europe or you know, to English boarding schools is they would come back to India not speaking any of the local languages. But they'd, they'd know, you know Latin, Greek, French, Spanish, Italian, and English very, very well. But it doesn't help if you're then going to rule a state in Bihar somewhere. So these were the complications. But the schools existed and continue to exist and you know, are still elite schools in India. Absolutely. I mean, that was really wonderful. Um, I volunteer with a bunch of different people at the exhibit here, and we've had a fantastic few months talking to visitors about the exhibit. Um, I had a question about the six trunks. If you could tell me or t enlighten us about uh, if you have any information about how big those trunks were of jewels that were <laughs> given to Cartier and to Bouchard. We have no idea. We have no idea. It's just we know about it. Um, we don't have records on the Patiala side. We have records on the Boucheron side and the, and the press sightings. But the jewels must have been, you know, pretty, pretty substantial. Um, uh, with regards to the question that the lady asked earlier, uh, for example, the education part, Maharaja Dilip Singh, for mm. example, he is a bad example of how yes, British how it all took went him. wrong. Yeah, yes. can you talk a bit about that? And then Maharaja Patiala uh, Bhupinder Singh, because he was so young, he, he was forced to get out of there and come to Lahore to HSN College and study there. Yeah. So <clears throat> that is another side of how this mounted on cruelty almost. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole idea was, it was a real policy that they recognized, the British really recognized that if young boys remained in the, under the influence of their mothers in particular, that they would come under the influence of the zanana, the whole idea of the women who would be, you know, lived in seclusion, but actually had great authority, because if the boy was close to his mother as he was raised and as he grew up, he would always listen to her, and then she would be determining policy which actually happened in some states. So um, the whole idea was to get young boys out of the princely state, out of their home state as early as possible and get them away from their mother in particular as early as possible. And so the idea of sending them to Aitchison College or to Mayo College or whichever um, was very standard policy, you know, to get, to get them away from their families and to, and to raise them in a Western model. The story of Maharaja Dulip Singh is a complex one it's a, it's, a, it's a complex story of the uh, young, very, very, very young son of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, who ultimately is appointed or comes to the, comes to the throne of a, what was a very substantial empire, but one which is, uh, you know, at, by the point that he assumes any authority is, is uh, divided by strife and encroachment and all kinds of issues. And ultimately, his state, um, the state of Punjab, is annexed by the British in, I think, 1849. And he's dethroned. And what happens, of course, is that um, he's isolated from his family. And he's completely anglicized. And in the beginning, of course, it's absolutely fine. Uh, in that, you know, culturally... Uh, he rises or one rises to the dominant power of the time and he becomes very anglicized and he but there's a big problem with him in particular because he has no more state 
And then there's a question of speculation about legitimacy. There are all sorts of issues in his case. But what happens in the case of Maharaja Dulip Singh is that he can't really stay in the Punjab because he's going to be the center for a rebellious, any kind of rebellion. And um, it's decided that he should go to England. And he goes to England, and he's fine in the beginning, and he's quite accepted in the family of Queen Victoria as a kind of exotic friend. Um, but as he grows up, the big issue is that he has, and he is also given a very strong sense of his importance, because his father was a very great ruler. Um, but he doesn't have the means to sustain that importance. And he doesn't have a state, he doesn't have the income, but he has claims, of course. And he starts to make the claims, uh, but it's a very complicated one because it's the hand that feeds, he's making the claims against the hand that feeds him and he leads into a rebellion. And then he gives up all of, you know, he'd converted to Christianity, he gives it all up and tries to assume his original identity, but actually most of his life was led outside of India, outside of an Indian environment. So. You know, there were, there were, he is probably the most spectacularly well-known, but there are many examples of princes who were really caught between East and West. And at the end of the day, the East India Company had to deal with the princes on a personal level, but it was just a means to an end because it was all about, you know, uh, it was all about exercising political control of India and also maximizing the economic return of India. And so the princes were, you know, at the end of the day, kind of just minor issues. And I think you see that in Dilip Singh's life and in terms of how he's treated. I, thank you so much. That was a superb talk, and I'm sorry it's actually stopping. Uh, you have incredible depth of knowledge. You could have talked for hours and not repeated yourself. <laughs> and your, your passion is... Your enthusiasm is incredible as well. So I'm only just sorry that you didn't manage to actually see the exhibition. Shirley, who was helping me out, was the interpretive planner on that exhibition. Oh, right. So he was asking me some questions about the differences between how it was here and how it was in, in London. So you might be able to ask her afterwards. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you what is coming next. Our next excitement is an Inuit symposium to go with the Inuit Modern Exhibition, which opens on April 2nd. And on Friday, April 1st, April Fool's Day, we are having our first online Inuit symposium, online symposium. So that'll be interesting. And then on the Saturday, we're bringing 13 artists from the Arctic. So I'm really looking forward to that. After that, on April 13th, we have a talk by Matthew, Matthew Teitelbaum, our fearless leader, the director of the gallery, who's going to talk about Patterson Ewan. He has curated that exhibition, which is up on the fifth floor. On April 20th, I've invited a philosopher from Concordia who's also going to talk about Patterson-Ewan. He's going to talk about the phenomenology of Patterson-Ewan. And then on April 27th, it's amazing what you can keep in your mind, April 27th, we have um, a talk to go with the David Blackwood exhibition. And that's Rex Murphy and David Blackwood in conversation, which should be quite lively. So <laughs> please come back and thank you very much. And please come back as well so you can see more <laughs> of the gallery. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.